0: All right, so welcome, friends, to the fifth night of trailside, or of discovery. It's flying by. It feels like we just started yesterday, really. So my name's Deacon Adam. For those of you who don't know me, it's a pleasure to be here, and we're going to talk about what it means to worship and then go out into the world as we explore different ways that we practice faith and how we take that faith and commit it to our presence in the, in the world. And I first want to start, before I advance the slides and we get into this, I want to emphasize there's no wrong way to worship. There is no right way to worship. It's all the right way to worship. So we do talk about traditional worship and contemporary worship, and everybody has a different opinion, and this is my personal opinion. Worshiping God is something that we all have our own personal way of doing. And some people are very outward about it. Some people are very private about it. And I think that's a wonderful thing because there's no There's no adherence in the Episcopal Church on how you must worship. Now, there are practices and things you will see common and often, and I encourage you to ask questions as we go along here. So for our first topic tonight, we're going to talk about what is right one, what is right two, and then, of course, what is this here at Trailside on Thursdays? Does anybody have an idea of what the differences are between right one and right two? We do? Yeah.
1: One difference is the language used. Yeah. um The Elizabethan language as compared to the contemporary language.
0: Yeah. That's probably the best way to describe it, is uh, a tradition that is absolutely hundreds of years old, and it's ancient, and the way that it's written, and it can be beautiful. I connect with that, that language very much so. Um, it can be Practiced in a number of ways we've seen altars where the priest faces the east which looks like he, they, they have their back to you and then we see people that practice worship where the priest is facing outward and looking towards the congregation and even sometimes we have worship where the priest is in the center of the room and the altars in the center of the room um, if anybody grew up as a roman catholic like i did you've probably heard about uh, vatican ii and what that meant and that was when the idea of pulling the altar away from the wall and bringing it to the center of the people was was brought about in that church, but the liturgical movement is something that began in the mid-late 20th century and brought people to the idea that should worship be something we all do in the same fashion, or is there something that we should do where we bring it into a a centered room? Um, Everybody has an opinion on that. I actually do not really have a strong opinion either way. I like both. And you can go to other Episcopal churches in Kansas City and see it done completely different. One of my favorite places in town outside of home here is St. Mary's downtown. And you will see a very ancient practice where the priest and the deacon and all the people who are part of the celebration are facing the east and they're, they're looking towards essentially uh, uh, the, the cross and, and, and God towards the east like a morning star rising. And it will remind you a little more of a Jewish temple in the, fa- in the fashion that they're looking towards the rising of God in our life. And here at St. Andrews, our altar is just enough off the wall that you can see myself and, and Mother Jean and Father John and Mother Rita kind of sneak behind it and look out at you. And then you can go to other churches like St. Michael and All Angels in Prairie Village, and the altar is much more centered in the room. And people can come all the way around the altar to receive communion. So there are different ways that, that that practice can be applied, and it means things to, different things to different people. The music um, that we practice here in our right One service, we have a cantor that comes and sings, and a cantor is the liturgical word for a soloist. That is one person that sings the hymns for us, and it can be very moving in the sense that it's very personal and more, much more intimate in, the, in that nature. Uh, In Rite 2, we have a full choir, so we have a choral Eucharist where you see the spectacle of the full choir offering their praises to God, and we're all invited to sing along. So, Rite 2 is something that most of you are probably familiar with. That is our contemporary worship in the Episcopal Church that is most commonly seen in most Episcopal churches around the country. The language is modern. We use today's language in how we offer our prayers and we read our scripture and you will, you will also see here, we do something very contemporary where we use screens instead of bulletins and it's much more relaxed in the sense that people can kind of sit anywhere. If you were here last Sunday for our pet blessing, this room was set up in a similar fashion except we didn't have the tables for everyone, we just had rows of chairs and the band was over here and Father John was on the other side of the screen with an altar and all the praise music was on the screen. So I invite you to explore those things and try the different styles of worship here. You may be surprised what you like. It might not be what you f- first connected with. It wasn't for me. I loved Right 2 and found that I loved Right 1 a little more so. But it's just, it's just some of the prayers speak to my heart more. So what's in a name? What is this idea of communion? You know, you, you're going to hear... at the the Episcopal Church, Holy Eucharist a lot, or the Eucharistic Service. And Eucharist is essentially a modern version of an ancient Greek word that stands for the Great Thanksgiving, the Lord's Supper, or a Mass. The word Mass also comes from an ancient Latin translation, which essentially means worship service. So these things are things to consider when you hear these words, and they can make you feel a little bit like if you don't know, you're not in, in the know, but we don't want anyone to feel that way. We use the words, they roll off our tongues because we're, we're immersed in it, and we welcome anyone to ask questions. There's no wrong way to do communion in the sense that you're supposed to call it one thing versus the other. And a question to ask you is, how do they change your perception of what's happening in the liturgy? Does Eucharist sound more formal than the Lord's Supper? Does the Great Thanksgiving sound less formal or more formal? Those are things to consider. What sounds more inviting? Things to think about. So when you're at a worship service, especially across the street, you're gonna see a whole lot of people doing a whole lot of different things. And you may occasionally see people cross themselves, and you may see them bow when they hear the name of Jesus, or the thing that always caught me when I was a child at a a worship service was the gospel and I saw them doing this little funny thing with their thumb and I didn't know what it was and kept asking my mom what is that and she would explain to me she goes they're making little crosses over their their head, their lips and their heart and for some of us the physical act of practicing something helps us connect with what we're worshipping and something about that that I think is interesting is has anybody considered what physical practice looks like in contemporary worship because it does happen especially in a very energetic place you'll see people raise their hands you'll see people dance and jump people are practicing physical worship sometimes they don't even realize they're intentionally doing it it can be more intentional in the episcopal church um, but it is absolutely your personal style my wife kim and i we are in total disagreement over this i am i am absolutely a roman catholic at heart in the sense that i cross myself i i bow with the name of jesus because it connects me and she grew up in a non-denominational church and doesn't even think about it. She witnesses and watches and feels just as connected without any physical acts. So if you ever have any questions about this stuff, I mean, we are here to answer those things. And you're going to see a funny word, and, and this word we see all the time in the, in, the, in the liturgical world is rubrics. And rubric is essentially the rules. Well, rules, just like most in the Episcopal church, are made that you may do it, Some should do it, but no one must do it. There is no hard rule of what you have to do to worship with us. And when you read in the Book of Common Prayer, you may come across in there little defined print. Sometimes it's in red. And if you read that little defined print, it'll tell you what should be happening with the physical actions at that time. Like it may say, the priest breaks the bread at a certain point in one of the Eucharistic prayers. And that is... Essentially, the stage directions, and I love the fact that it's printed in there as a suggestion of how it can be done. It's yes, Neil. Well, I'm just going to ask you, what, what are the cues mm-hmm. when I see some people cross themselves? And, and yeah. I'm always behind. So I'm thinking, <laughs> what, what did I miss? Here? What, yes. What was the so the, the biggest cue and the easiest cue to remember is usually when you hear the Trinity: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. People will cross themselves. People may also cross themselves at the time when they hear the name Jesus invoked, our Lord Jesus Christ. But there are other times, and I know this is, I'm adding to the confusion, but essentially it's the idea that people either bow their head a little bit at the name of Jesus Christ like they would towards a king, or they cross themselves if they can't bow. Um, Some people do, not everyone does, and there's no wrong way. But it's traditionally an idea is that you would cross yourself And the the history of crossing oneself actually dates back to the very, very early church. It's some of the most early information that we have on how Christians practiced within 100 years of Christ's death that the physical act of communion, the physical act of setting the table, the physical act of breaking the bread, and the physical act of crossing oneself really was a part of the ancient church before we had a lot of the text that we call the the New Testament today. So this idea that we use these physical acts is something that is handed down for almost 2,000 years and made its way to today that it's still in practice. But that's when you would hear it often, er, or when people would cross themselves often, is when they would hear the name of Christ or an invocation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any other questions? No, I'll, it's okay. Is there a point when they do a cross for the dead in the Eucharistic prayer? I, I feel like I see something happen when that part is mentioned, and I wonder if I'm imagining that maybe. Yes, I think it, so. What, I, what I'm remembering is in the Nicene Creed, when we get to the point and we talk about the resurrection of the dead, and you do see a lot of us cross at that point. Or um, there's another point in one of the Eucharistic prayers where we're invoking the idea of our resurrection through the body and blood of Christ being sanctified and receiving that, that we cross ourselves. Yeah, I think there may be a few other moments, but the reality is, is when it feels right. When it feels right to cross oneself, there's no wrong way to do it. I have seen people that worship that during the Eucharistic prayers, they cross themselves and they talk about the baptism. They cross themselves again when they talk about they talk about the Holy Spirit, and once more, a third time at the resurrection. Some people are very reverent in that. And speaking of reverence, bowing and kneeling and standing—all those things—there there are traditional meanings to that, and people may and some and and some may not. Um, traditionally, the rule was is that we sit to listen and learn, and we stand to praise, and we kneel to pray. So in a traditional service, a very traditional service, you may spend more time on your knees on the kneeler than you would standing or sitting, and at some parishes you will see that. People kneel for the duration of the Eucharistic prayer. Now, my body can't handle that after a spinal fusion, and I can sometimes get down there and kneel for a few minutes for a confessional prayer, but I don't kneel often anymore, And there is, once again, no wrong way to do that. Um, Bowing is something that some people do when they enter the room. They bow to the cross at the end of the aisle in front of the altar before they enter the pew. Some people genuflect. That is a physical act that I cannot do. They go down on one knee and then stand back up. So there, there are many things that people do in worship. I did find one year when I first attended my first Good Friday service, Kneeling for the confession hit me in a much more emotional and spiritual way than it ever did when I was standing and saying it, and it changed my perspective on getting on my knees for God. And it works. It works for me. So I think we've covered. Is there any any questions on those uh, those actions or items? Push or pull. Push or pull. (sighs) Okay, I learned a different way when I was a young Roman Catholic kid, but I know. I, I have to think about it. It's up, down, left, right. But I've seen people do it the opposite and I'm not sure. I think in Europe they actually do it the opposite. In the Orthodox Church, in the Orthodox Church. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well we hope for everybody at home that you, you can hear us. We're all having a good time here. We hope you are with us as well. So So whenever you look at the bulletin in a service, you may see two specific moments in the service. One is called the Liturgy of the Word, and one is called the Liturgy of the Table. Technically, we're performing two services at once when we come together to worship on a Sunday. And the Liturgy of the Word is where we think of most of our prayers happening and most of our learning happens. We hear scripture. We recite a psalm together. We will hear the gospel proclaimed from a deacon or a priest in the middle of the room. And then we'll hear a sermon where it's a reflection uh, on on exactly what did what did we hear, and it invites questions in our minds. We'll then proclaim our faith in the creed, and you know I like to point out when we talk about the creed, and people ask, well, what is what what does your church believe in? Some churches state very clearly we believe in this, and they have this essential covenant, or they have um, a different set of beliefs that are stated very clearly we are a creedal church, we believe in the Nicene Creed. It states everything that is necessary to be a baptized Christian in in the church. The Apostles' Creed came about roughly about 800 years after the beginning of the Nicene Creed, and it was a shortened and more condensed version. It has a little controversy around it because there was a time when the Nicene Creed, um, there was a question about whether Jesus descended into hell and brought the souls from hell to heaven. And what did that mean for the people who died before Christ's existence? Those are theological debates that we have a group across the street that meets on Sunday morning can can absolutely fascinate you with. And I joined that group and learned a lot from very worthy scholars. Um, Christian Journey uh, is, is such a wonderful place where they will go in depth on these things. And they'll talk about the theology of their theology and how they perceive it. And scholars and how they, how they see it. The reality is, is that we are doing the best we can. It took almost a 1,000 years for the current form of the Nicene Creed to be written and then translated into English. And it's not necessarily the same in every church. You'll hear it done a little differently if you go to a Presbyterian church or even a Catholic church or a non-denominational church. You may not hear it at all. Several several churches practice differently, but the idea that we are saying we believe in this Trinitarian God is the whole goal and essence of the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. There is a third creed that is in the back of the book, the back of the Book of Common Prayer, that we don't use often. Actually, I don't think it's really ever used at all anymore. It's a historical creed. It's called the Athanasian Creed. And it really tries to explain in detail how the Holy Spirit exists, how the Incarnation exists, how Jesus Christ descended from the Father and is connected to the Father as one. And for many of us, and I say us because I truly am confused by it, it confuses me more than actually answers questions. <laughs> yeah. But the the thing I love about the Book of Common Prayer is that it has the historical documents, like the Thirty-Nine Articles of Confession, when at one time in the English Church they tried to really solidify what do we believe. And other churches still practice some of those things and talk about those things. They're a part of our history and they which form us to today. We focus specifically on the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed. So okay, I want to ask a question. If anybody knows the answer, do you know when it's proper to say the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed? There is a, there is a proper for this. Apostles Creed morning prayer. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'll repeat it for people online. The Apostles' Creed morning <laughs> prayer, and really any prayer service where Eucharist is not offered. Mm-hmm. So. The Eucharistic prayer is a requirement. There's actually a set of requirements if you go into the Book of Common Prayer under Eucharistic prayers, and it will tell you what the order of worship has to be in order to properly have Eucharist. A gospel must be proclaimed. And that's why sometimes, even Mother Rita was a great example tonight. She preached on Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, but we must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ out of one of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So she read the gospel and then made it clear that'll be heard about on Sunday by the preacher on Sunday. Now we're going to focus on Paul's letter, which the fancy Greek word is epistle. Epistle is essentially a letter. So whenever you hear the term epistle, we're talking about all the letters that were written to try and understand who Christ was in that time after Christ was gone. And great great. I want to say evangelists, but also apostles, were out spreading the gospel, Paul being one of the greatest of them all, Peter also doing the work of establishing the church. So we hear the Psalms every Sunday, and we hear the Psalms often, and we pray the Psalms all the time. And the thing about the Psalms that I love is they're pre-written prayers that come to us from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament Bible. I believe, Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, or, or Mother Jean, mostly written by Isaiah. I think most of those, I think it was believed that it may have been, is that, am I wrong, Susan? I, I don't think that's true. Well, no, th- David, David, okay, thank you. Joshua, no. what was the <coughs> David, okay, that's, that's, it, it's technically they're anonymous and there's always been debate about who wrote these but essentially they cover all the human heart's conditions, all the things that we see and experience in life, from sadness to sorrow to happiness and joy. And the apostles, or the apostles, the the, the psalms are really a part of the structure of our service as a communal opportunity to pray something together that's ancient, but may speak to our contemporary times and what we're personally going through in the moment. I find often in a worship service that we're praying the psalm and it's touching me in a way that I'm being emotionally affected in my personal life. And it's so odd how it just shows right up. And to me, that's a reminder of the Holy Spirit's presence.
2: I think one of the things that I really appreciate about the Psalms Mm -hmm. is that those are prayers that Jesus would have been very familiar with. Yes. So it's a wonderful way of really connecting in a way that Jesus would have worshipped in our own modern-day worship.
0: Thank you for bringing that up, Jen. That is absolutely right. You will often find in the Gospels, Jesus is preaching, remember, as a, as a, as a Jewish rabbi, and he's using the, the Jewish Bible, which is what we call the Old Testament, to, in, in, to teach. And he's reciting the Psalms, and you'll hear allusions to the Psalms and other prophets, but mostly a lot of the Psalms it really it will be brought up in his teachings. And for those of us who, who you hear that preach often, we try to figure out what is Jesus telling us by looking at what was Jesus teaching the disciples at that time by going back to the Old Testament text and figuring out, oh, this is what he meant in context. So that's where we talk about sermons. What exactly is a sermon? I mean, it's a reflection. It's, um, it's a shared thought. You'll also hear a fancier term called a homily. And homilies are... Um, I don't think there's a specific preference between the two but i hear homily more often said in the roman catholic church and i hear sermon more often said in the episcopal church
1: my understanding and i may be wrong but i always thought that a homily um spoke directly to um the scripture and a sermon may or may not i mean especially in non-denominational churches a preacher might get up and just Start talking about something that's on his mind that's not related to
0: a particular yeah. scripture. I like that. This is the first I've heard of that, and I actually really like that. Um, what I had heard at one time is a homily should be seven to nine minutes, a sermon is more like 12 to 15 minutes. <laughs> right. So it was a time constraint. <laughs> that's <what I've> heard. <laughs> it shows you there's so many different ways to yeah. understand what we do. There's, you know, there's multiple ways to have these things have meaning in our lives. And once again you know the nicene creed it's a communal statement of faith outlining what we believe about our trinitarian nature and we covered that but it's really it's really something that i think is the bedrock of our christian faith a trinitarian god and also trying to explain what the trinity is Mm -hmm. is something that is is hard to do there's a mystery to that it's yes and and it can be controversial you know on Trinity Sunday, oftentimes the person who preaches finds themselves struggling to explain what that means because it you know you could accidentally commit heresy, but you know the reali- the reality is 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 um, it's hard to explain the most famous version in my opinion of trying to explain the Trinity was Saint Patrick using the using the um the clover the, and that is not really accurate, but it's, it's beautiful, and I love it, and I love the clover imagery, but really it looks, in my opinion, more something circular, but it's you could get into heresy really quick on that stuff. It's designed to be a mystery, and I think that's what brings us the wonder and joys that we just can't understand as humans. So when we continue into the Liturgy of the Word, you'll notice we always have a moment where we pray for the people of the church, the people of the world, the people on our hearts. We did it here tonight, and sometimes we do it in in a much more committed and intentional format across the street. You know, if you come to our 1015 service, the right 2 you'll always see somebody come up to the podium, and they'll offer a specific prayer, and usually there's a response for the whole congregation. If you come to the 8 o'clock service, you may see a priest or myself offer the entire prayers of the people and offer a space for you to offer your own intercessions at that time. Some people speak them out loud, and I love that. It's beautiful, they offer names out loud. And some people keep them in their hearts. There's no wrong way to pray. And there's nobody that says you have to pray out loud. We We don't push people to do things like that in this tradition. Corporate confession is something that I think is a beautiful thing in the Episcopal Church. It's not done everywhere, but this idea that we all acknowledge that we've sinned, and we all ask for forgiveness. And the best part about that is sins known and unknown. Sometimes we unintentionally hurt people, or we unintentionally do life in the absence of God, and there's this whole theory about how are we sinning, and are we sinning as a, as a human condition, or is we sinning as individuals? And the answer is yes, we're all sinning. We're always struggling with that sin, and we always need to come back for forgiveness, and that forgiveness offers unconditional love. The thing that struck me the most with our pet blessings it's just the cool service because you've got all these dogs and cats and it's a little chaotic but these animals love us unconditionally and they forgive us unconditionally it kind of seems like they have something to teach us more about God than we probably have to teach, our, teach each other about God so I do love how animals have that unconditional forgiveness and just like God we offer our confession and receive that unconditional love So how might this corporate confession differ from individual confessions such as reconciliation of a penitent? And understand that the Episcopal Church does offer private confession. Anybody can schedule a time with one of the priests and sit down and go through an actual order of service that's in the Book of Common Prayer to ask for forgiveness and to be absolved of those sins. And it's a beautiful service. It's a beautiful thing. Some churches even have confessionals where you can actually sit in a private space and the, the priest is on the other side of a, of a screened wall in a private space and, and will listen to your, your sins and offer you, conf- offer you forgiveness and absolution. And let those things go up to God and not remember them. That's the key part, is to be the conduit for God and let it go to God. And it can be healing, very healing. You may hear the the term unction used when we talk about sacrament, that is essentially reconciliation. And then, of course, one of the key pieces, this is a requirement to have Eucharist, you must pass the peace. It is critical and that is one of the oldest things in our Christian faith is passing the peace, offering each other love and, and recognition in the room. Does anybody know why that's included in the liturgy?
1: I don't know why it is, but I'm wondering if that's a requirement for Eucharist. How come we don't do it here at Trailside?
0: Well, technically, we do. Oh. We do it at the end. <laughs> we do. And actually, at the pet blessing, we offered it at the very beginning. So there's no place where it has to technically be. It can be anywhere in the service. And at, at, at Sunday for the pet blessing, Father John asked everybody to pause for a moment turn to their neighbor and say hello. That's passing the peace. And here we say, now go out into the world to pass the peace and it's a part of the dinner service and a part of the conversation that comes after when we start to connect with each other. Because the the idea is that the service never ends. And and that's something that, um, as your deacon, when I dismiss you to go out into the world, I'm not ending the service. I'm dismissing you to keep going out there and keep worshiping out there because... That worship out there is just as important as this worship in here. It never ends. So I really appreciate the question. Yeah. You're, you're, it's absolutely great that you're noticing those things. Thank you. <laughs> well, I just thought of it. No, I actually, actually we, we, we did talk about it a long, long time ago. when We first formed Trailside, and we discussed the liturgy, where to put it, and how to make people feel welcome. And it was intentionally designed to be a greeting at the beginning to break the ice, make everybody feel acknowledged and welcomed in the room. I love seeing it at the beginning of services. What a great way to make people feel like they're seen and heard and to say hello. Now we do that because we don't have ushers and greeters over here like we do across the street where you're probably greeted coming into, into the entryway. So the liturgy of the table, this is where we get into communion, holy communion, the Eucharist, all those different terms. You'll see a couple specific things that are very important in order to actually have communion. There's an offering that has to be offered. And when you see the offering, that's when you'll see the ushers come around with with collection plates, and you may see at some churches the bread and the wine is processed up to the altar and blessed along with the gifts from the people. And the idea behind this is that we are giving our hearts and giving ourselves over to God and God's giving us something in return. It's a very, very democratic, very Greek value to this idea of transactional experience. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes you'll hear one of the most beautiful and moving musical pieces during that time, and it's often not, not, does not requested that the congregation sing along with it. It's something that the choir offers to, to the people in reflection as we prepare our hearts. And setting the table. This is something that I love, love, love to do. I don't know why, I should have been a waiter, I didn't realize, but I just love, I just love setting the table, and this, you know, it's bringing out all what we call the holy hardware, and this is the chalice and the patent, and, and all these little things that mean something very special, but really are creating sacred space for this idea of the bread and the wine being Christ. Now, that is another topic for another day. Some people believe it to be a memorial. Some people believe it to be transubstantiation, which is a very fancy way of saying this turns into Jesus Christ on the plate. Officially, the Episcopal Church says it's transubstantiation, but you will find that you will never find the same answer between two different people. We all have a different interpretation of what it is, and it's all correct, because there there are times that it's said it sounds like a memorial in some of the Eucharistic prayers, and it sounds like it's, it's a remembrance. And some churches go that direction with it and they treat it strictly as a memorial some churches to believe it to be so holy they adore it you know adoration is something you'll hear in the catholic church and they will hold up the host and it will be in a specific humoral veil and they will make sure that it is only seen in the priest is veiled so the priest cannot be seen while holding that so yes yeah, steve one of the things that i really enjoy service is the eucharist mm-hmm. i mean it's very important for me i was raised a baptist and my mother still is technically a baptist and i try to explain this to her and she says you do it every sunday <laughs> and it just kind of i've seen that seems to be one of the big divisive points i've heard of people having churches where they just set it at the back of the room you can go back and serve yourself mm-hmm. Is there a right or wrong? Or? It depends on what your belief is. You know, it, the oldest version of it would be the practice of communion often and communion every time we gather. Um, there have been reformations over the course of these 2,000 years where people have been in disagreement over how that works, the biggest one being the reformation that came about under Martin Luther, and then the subsequent theologians that said, do we need this? Or, or are we predestined to go to heaven? We don't even choose that. I mean, there, there are, and that, that's, you'll find that often in, in Presbyterian churches. Your choice to go to heaven is not your choice. God chose you, and you are just finally acknowledging that acceptance. There are so many different ways that, that it is practiced that for me to say there's one right way or one official way would be, It would be insincere, because I truly believe that people that practice and don't feel the need to go for communion are just as worthy of God's love and God's acceptance and forgiveness and feel that same spirit. But for me personally, it's communion like it is for you. It's it's, it's Holy Eucharist, absolutely. I find that I'm a much happier human being when I practice going to the altar for communion more often. And I say that because I recognize that even in the Episcopal Church, we don't often always have services that have communion. Prayer services used to be a more common thing before this version of the Book of Common Prayer came about. And communion only happened, I believe, monthly. It may have been quarterly in some places. And it was, it was often more about the prayer service, that feasting on the word, than actually feasting at the table. And the liturgical movement or the yeah, the liturgical movement shifted us more towards a Eucharistic centered church. So Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like in Western Kansas, for instance, that's common in a lot of churches with bivocational clergy, right? Where they don't yes. have a priest to perform the Eucharist every week. As a matter of fact, um, something that we are we are now doing in the Diocese of West Missouri for the first time in a long time again are deacons' masses. And a deacon can offer everything that you see in a mass with the exception of sanctifying the bread and the wine, and they may pull that element out of what we call reserve sacrament. There's little boxes in every church that hold that reserve sacrament, and they offer it from there after saying the Lord's Prayer. But sometimes in the absence of even a Eucharistic minister, like a deacon, a priest, or a certified licensed Eucharistic minister, it will be just a prayer service. As a matter of fact, I think often of our our friend Rosina, who's probably online with us right now from Grace Church in Chillicothe, and they don't have a priest. They do have a deacon who's in charge, but I think at times they offer just prayer services on Sunday mornings. And they have lay, lay preachers, and, and I believe she is also one of the leaders of those prayer services, which is pretty cool. There's more power in the laity than I think is often said enough. Everybody can lead a prayer service. Or you can just pick up the book and do it. I mean, really, it's in there. It's the morning prayer, noonday prayer, evening and It's beautiful. So, of course, at the end, after we've broken the bread, and after we've, we've fed everybody in the room, we dismiss. And dismissal, oftentimes you'll hear, comes from a deacon. It can come from a priest, but it's this idea that we're going out into the world to continue the work. We're not ending the service. We'll just, we're pausing it and we'll come back later. So, the very idea of going out into the world is important for us because Our baptismal covenant actually tells us that it is our duty as a Christian to go out into the world, to continue in the teaching and fellowship that the apostles did, and breaking the bread with people, and praying with people, and to preserve and resist evil, and whenever we fall into sin, to come back and repent. Those things are told for us to do, and to proclaim the word an example of the good news in God and Christ. What is spreading the good news? Is it helping a neighbor? Is it being kind to somebody in the store? Is it letting something pass even though it aggravates you while you're driving down the road and not getting mad? Yes. It's all the above. How can we be more peaceful in the world? And how can we seek and serve Christ in all people? This is the thing I like the most. Seeking and serving Christ in all people, not seeking and serving Christ in all baptized Christians. That means people that you may truly disagree with and not even like but we have to recognize the dignity in every human being if we're all created in that likeness and image, which takes us to loving our neighbor as we would love ourselves. Now, I know that's a beautiful line, but the hard reality in 2023 is not everyone loves themselves very much. And that is a hard thing to say, how do you wanna go out and love someone as you would love yourself if you struggle with that? I don't have the answers. We live in a hurting world, and that's why we need to pray, and we need to be kinder to each other go out and serve each other more. Striving for justice and peace among all people and respecting dignity. Has the church historically done that? Hmm. I think the the obvious answer is no. We would not, The, the church has hurt people and it's hurt people since its existence because as humans we sin corporately, individually. We have to reconcile and reconciliation is such a key piece. And what does reconciliation look like for people? That is a question that deserves an entire night itself. What is reconciliation? But recognizing that we can't do it just right. There is no perfection. Only God is perfect. And in the the fashion of understanding how you're designed to serve, we offer a spiritual gifts inventory here at St. Andrews. And you can use the QR code here. I believe that we have the ability to pass this information around. It's a fairly quick uh, test. I think it's only about 20 or so questions. That'll just ask you what you prefer to do when you interact with people, and it may say that you prefer to greet and be social. You're outward, and you have a lot of energy when you're around people, and it gives you more energy. You might be a great greeter or great in hospitality, and other things may make you feel that you should be involved in the worship of the liturgy. Maybe it's setting the altar, like our sacristans do in mm-hmm. altar guild, or becoming an ordained person, like like Mother Jean and myself, and josh i mean you know in another tradition i mean people find themselves answering god's call in many different ways and there's thousands of ways to answer that call and of course all the things that we offer at saint andrews whether you want to be a part of the communal life within the church or serving out in the world this is the list and thank you to jen for making this list happen you can see at the top, it's worship and music and all the things that we offer to make prayer and worship and the spiritual life of St. Andrews happen weekly. And then service, going out into the community, serving our friends and neighbors around us. There's a variety of ways, and St. Andrews Outreach Program is, is such a wonderful entity because it offers someone a way to serve every way that you may possibly imagine. Uh, my personal favorite on the list just because I've loved it for years is Andy's Pantry. It started during COVID and it was about how do we serve the families of the Benjamin Banneker Elementary and help them with necessities. And it first started off as a food drive and we would have grocery bags for people to come pick up and then we'd go to their house. And now we go shopping with them into the stores. It's wonderful. You can see there's a number of ways to do it. and. As a self-shameless plug, St. Andrew's Spotlight is a podcast. We highlight these ministries and talk to the people that lead them and go in-depth in conversation for 30 to 45 minutes about how they see God in the world and how they feel that they've represented God in the world. So as we close this portion, and I turn it over to Mother Jean, I am honored to offer you a little prayer from St. Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes which he, t- he looks, compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. You are the eyes with which he looks with compassion on this world. Christ has nobody now on earth but yours. Amen. Amen. All right. Yeah, and I should probably hand this Shows over. For for yeah. That was yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I yeah. <clears throat> still on.
2: Portion will be very brief. It's really about what happens after discovery for all of you. We next week is our last week, and so what does that mean? Um, and we the next step is really what happens when you go through these the red doors across the street or the clear doors over here? Where do you hope to find yourself? You've been together for six weeks learning about um, the Episcopal faith, getting to know one another, and Perhaps um, you still have questions or you hear God kind of nudging you in one way or the other. And so there's many paths um, to go down as you become, if you so choose to be part of our community. One thing that uh, Adam mentioned is the spiritual inventory, gifts inventory. I think you have the QR code um, in this pamphlet and I think we passed it down on the first night. And it is a good way to see where your strengths lie, um, and where then, where then might you be able to get plugged in here? Like Adam mentioned, I mean, if you really feel called to um, walking with people when they're uh, struggling, or maybe people who are in or homebound and nursing homes. I mean, we have a place for you to help with that like in pastoral care. So there's many different pathways and once you take your spiritual gifts inventory, you can kind of see where your strengths lie or you might be surprised. It will also tell you maybe, maybe this area really isn't for you. So I mean, it's not just, it, it's an honest inventory. It's very quick. I encourage you to do it and then to take it. And then what are the paths? What are ways that you can get connected? Well, there's a learning pathway. If you're wanting to, to dig deeper in formation, and um, we offer so many different uh, classes, um, and I have listed in the different areas people to contact. So um, thank you. So learning, for instance, adult formation, children, youth, young adult. So um, I've listed our staff people who are represent, who you can contact if you want more information about learning. Serving, we, you just saw a whole huge list, and you have it in your uh, handout from tonight. We have so many different opportunities to serve both in, uh, at St. Andrews and beyond. So uh, Sarah Topekian is our resource for, for um, our outreach ministries. Caring, I talked about that. These are pastoral care ministries, such as we have people uh, Andrews Angels who actually go and meet with people who are homebound, and they build this relationship with others. We uh, offer meals to people who maybe have had, uh, been in the hospital or so forth. So there's caring ministries that Mother Rita oversees. Um, worshiping, we have so many different areas of worship, <laughs> but if, if any of these, I'll let you look through the list, but please, you know, you see the ways to get involved in worship, whether it's um, being, uh, part of getting the service set up, like Adam mentioned, through Altar Guild. Um, we have acolytes, we have people who help. Um, Paul is a Eucharistic minister, you joined Paul Johnson. So just, if, if you feel called to any of these, please contact the people. Connecting, um, so there are different ways to connect here when we uh, call our community engagement. So connection partners, they, I do wanna raise connection partners. These are, if, if you, are, we have people that will um, kind of partner with you or like big brother, big sister or whatever, but if you're wanting to connect with uh, people that have been members for a while, we have uh, parishioners that would love to meet for coffee and conversation and they'd sit with you in church. Have you, Susan, have you been a connection partner before? Okay, uh, but it's a great opportunity to get to know like I said parishioners that are already here have a familiar face when you come to church on Sundays and ask all sorts of questions so if you're interested in connection a connection partner please let me know and I can get you set up with um, someone and other ways to connect of course there's all sorts of ways over here because uh, for community engagement so being baristas um, we have an art show people can help with the art show and so so forth All of this can be found on our website as well. And as you can see, there are so many different ways to connect. Um, If you're still not sure, reach out to one of us, Adam, Father John, um, and Mother Rita. We would be happy to have conversation with you to see where you are and what questions you might have and where where you see yourself next. Um, Lastly, just some next steps here there will be a newcomer blessing on october 29th and so for anyone who has wants to be a member has become a member it's just raising up and praying for people who have come to saint andrews in the past year and so you all are invited if that is something you want to be a part of there are sacramental steps that you can take um, as part of membership here Um, if you haven't been baptized you can certainly be baptized There's confirmation, there's reaffirmation, so if you have been, um, and then there's received. So reaffirmation, if you've been confirmed earlier in life but you're like, yes, I think I really wanna reaffirm my confirmation, um, uh, then you you can do that. And then being received is if you have been confirmed by a bishop in a different denomination, you can be received in the Episcopal Church. None of this is mandatory, um, but these are just different options. Uh, and then if, if you're like, yeah, I think I want to be a member, it's pretty simple. Um, you fill out an information sheet if you're from a different, uh, if, you're, if you have a membership at a different church, we would want to transfer that membership. Um, and then uh, you are just a member of St. Andrews, and we welcome you with open arms. So any questions? I went through that quickly. I apologize that if I went too fast, but okay. Very good. Yes.
1: There is one question that some people may have um, on the uh, spiritual inventory. Yes. There's there's a uh, scan me thing. I forget what you call it. Yeah. QR code. Right. QR code. Is there a, an actual website that?
2: Yes. So can actually, go to? and I can send that to you. We are using. Oh my gosh. It's the diocese. It's not from our diocese. Diocese of Long Island. Oh, spiritualgiftquiz.org,
1: Spiritualgiftquiz.org. So.
2: But I can send that out to you. And they'll send you the results, and it's, it's inter- it is really interesting. It's very good. It's yeah, very good. they send... Yeah, so I would encourage you to do that. Um, next week is our last week. We'll be doing an Instructed Eucharist, uh, one of my favorites. Um, I never get tired of that, and I seem to learn something, even though... <laughs> I don't know. It's just great. It's great, the the conversation that takes place around the Instructed Eucharist. But we will still meet here have a quick bite to eat, and then we'll go across the street and have our instructed Eucharist across the street. Okay, Anything else? All right. Well, thank you all. Go Chiefs. (laughs) Travis Kelsey's playing, I guess.